Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 8 of Body Justice. Today, I am so excited, I can barely contain it. I have Sonia Renee Taylor here to talk about her latest edition of The Body is Not Apology and Your Body is Not an Apology workbook. She just blows me away, honestly. She's so full of wisdom and insight and tools to help us unpack um, all the ways we've been indoctrinated in this body shame story that we all have and the ways we've been affected by systems of oppression, no matter what kind of privileges we hold or what marginalized identities we hold, we are all a part of this system. So we're going to talk to her today to unpack how to develop radical self-love and how to reject some of the harm these systems continue to impact all of our lives. So without further ado, let's get started. Sonia, can you tell listeners a little bit about who you are, um, what you're passionate about, and how you identify? Sure. Um, I am Sonia Renee Taylor. I am the founder and radical executive officer of The Body is Not an Apology. Uh, we are a digital media and education company. I am passionate about liberation. I'm passionate about radical self-love. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about good food. <laughs> Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, pa I'm passionate about creating, um, creating the world we say we want and like, mm -hmm. what does that actually look like? What will that require of us and how do we get on to the business of doing it? Mm -hmm. Um, our goal is to create a world for, you know, a world of justity, compassion and equity for everybody and everybody. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I am a fat, black, queer, cisgender, neurodivergent woman um, who lives in Aotearoa, New Zealand. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I think that was um, one of my favorite quotes in your book was like a world for um, your body is a world for our, our bodies, I think it was, um, which is like the mission of the book really, right? Like accepting ourselves leads to accepting everyone else. And it's a safer world then for everyone. Yeah, awesome. exactly. Yeah, um, Lo loving ourselves, and I think that it feels really distinct, right? Like we we can accept people, but that doesn't mean like the state of acceptance. And I talk about this a little bit in the book. Is you know acceptance is important, right? It's a mm -hmm. it's a first step, but in a world that is wildly unjust and imbalanced acceptance isn't enough to get us to justice and equity. We've mm -hmm. got to actually figure out what would it be to love other humans and how would mm -hmm. I treat the people that I love, which is different than I treat what I accept. And mm -hmm. I think that's important. 
That is such an important distinction. Can you, maybe that's a good time to talk about like radical self-love. Like what does that even mean? Yeah. So I talk about radical self-love in the book as recognizing our inherent divinity, enoughness, Mm -hmm. worthiness, um, without exception, right? Without any need for external validation. And I think that, um, what we sometimes forget is that we arrived on this planet as radical self-love. We arrived here in right relationship with our bodies and in right relationship with the bodies of others. I, I say all the time, you've never seen a self-loathing toddler. Mm-hmm. You've never seen a toddler who's like, I really just hate my thoughts. Uh, <laughs> like, right. They need to love themselves. They love themselves. They love their bodies. They love your body. They think humans are interesting. Um, and we all came here that way. We all arrived here in right relationship. And the, the ideas that we have about um, not being enough, about not being inherently worthy, about not being inherently divine are not ideas we gave ourselves. They are ideas that were given to us. Mm-hmm. And, and then not only were they given to us, but an entire world of systems and structures and policies and um, ideas and you know institutions were built off of the story that we were somehow not enough for whatever, mm-hmm. for a multitude of reasons. Uh, and so radical self-love invites us to first, using the literal definitions of radical, it invites us to recognize that it is the origin of our relationship to ourselves, that, that that's how we started. And so the inception point is radical, is love. Um, it invites us to practice, um, a, a love that is thoroughgoing or extreme in the ways in which it tends to deal with itself in the world. We live in a world that is thoroughgoing and extreme in the ways in which it um, maligns and uh, marginalizes and disconnects humans from their bodies and from their sense of worthiness and value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we need something thoroughgoing and extreme to counter that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Radical self-love, in this case, proposes drastic political, social, and economic change. It proposes Mm -hmm. that the systems and structures that build our world are not built on love. They are not built on our worthiness and our enoughness and our value, our inherent divinity. And in order to create a world that works for everybody, then we will have to create a world that changes its political, social, and economic structures. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... uh, love as the foundation radical self-love is about foundational and one of the things that I know that I I seek and desire is a world um, where the foundation of how we build each other the foundation of how we build our systems and structures the foundation of how we build our schools and our hospitals and our familial connections is love Mm -hmm. that's the world I want to look at that's the world I'm moving toward um, and the world I hope other people want to move toward with me. Um, and that is also the definition of radical. So all of those things are what mm-hmm. radical self-love is. And all of those things already exist in us. Mm-hmm. Right. It's our birthright. And our birthright. embodying it is like coming back home to our true self and like rejecting all these systems. Um, do you ever have anyone that reads the book and they're just like, wow, but where do I start? Like, it's a yeah. big ask. It is a big task. Um, and I, I don't find that people read the book and say, where do I start? Usually because I try to include that inside of the book. 
<laughs> trying to tell us by the time they've read the book, they kind of get us. They are starting, right? Like I feel like that is part of the starting point, right? And and you know, but for folks who are listening and who are like, where do I start? I'm always like, well, first, grab you a copy of the book. Uh, grab you a copy of the workbook that came out last week because yeah. <laughs> I really do try to walk us through how do I get back to what I've always been right um, but one of the things that I always invite folks to do first and foremost if they've not engaged in the book is I say that you know moving to a radical self-love way of being in the world um, is a process of thinking doing and being and the first step is that we actually have to raise our thoughts to consciousness. We have to get curious about the way um, we relate to our bodies currently, because much of the way that we relate to our bodies just happens on default. It's just, you know, I try on something, it doesn't fit the way I wanted to, I immediately go to shaming myself. You know, I see a certain kind of body, I've been conditioned to believe certain things about it, I immediately go to judgment they happen so quickly because they are so deeply indoctrinated that we don't even question them. They're just what happens to us. Mm -hmm. um, and the first invitation is to say, when I have that self-shaming experience, what's, let me get curious. What's the story that I'm telling myself? Why do I believe that? Where did it come from? Mm -hmm. where, did, where did these ideas come from? What if these ideas aren't mine? Mm -hmm. And if they're not mine, then where did they come from? And I tell people all the time, I play a little game with myself when I've been, when some sort of oppressive thought pops up in my brain, I say, name that system. Mm -hmm. What system in the world, <laughs> what I system in the that. world is speaking through me right, right now, right? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, right, that phobia is speaking through me right now. Because mm -hmm. it's a system, it's not me. I am part of the system, but it is not the whole of who I am. It's the thing that was given to me. And so... I, I always invite people to first begin the process of getting really intimate and raising their thoughts to consciousness. Because once a thought is raised to consciousness, you have choice about behavior. And mm -hmm. that is actually the key to change is I got to think something different, then I got to do something different. Mm -hmm. But I won't do anything different if I've never interrogated the thoughts that create the actions. So mm -hmm. I have to first think about it, raise it to consciousness. And then from there, I get to say, oh, what would I do that is the opposite of shame. That's the opposite of marginalization. What would I, how would, how might I reframe this thought that I just had if I wanted to be incredibly loving to myself right now? What's mm -hmm. that? And then you practice that. And the process of practice over time is how we create a different way of being with our bodies and being with other people's bodies. So mm -hmm. absolutely. <laughs> yes, I love how you outlined that in the book, in the workbook too, like the, the three pillars all throughout like each chapter. Um, I think it gives people like really tangible steps to take. And I think one of the common things I hear is like, okay, I know it's the system. Um, you know, I know I need to think something different, but I don't believe it yet. Do people have to believe it before they start doing Nope, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> you know, no more than you have to be good at violin before you start practicing violin, right? Like there is nothing that we do that we are good at when we first started. Mm -hmm. The work of being good at is the work of practice. It is the work mm -hmm. of continual engagement in a thing. And so no, you don't have to believe it at all. You just have to keep practicing it. Because what's actually the brain science behind it is that the practice creates new neural pathways. The things that we think and believe are a function of our brain's ingrained practice over decades of thinking certain ways. Mm 
-hmm. We are not, our brains are malleable. They change. We can change the root of thought and you change the root of thought by practice, Mm -hmm. repetition. You know, I talk in the book about, in the workbook about um, meditation as a tool for rewiring our neural pathways. Um, So no, you don't have to believe it yet. You just have to practice it. Your brain will do the rest. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's like, almost like we need to equip people to accept that uncomfortability. It's not a comfortable process. Once we start raising those thoughts into consciousness, usually, you know, for myself, there is just so many, it's like opening Pandora's box of emotions. It's, it's heavy. It's a lot. Um, And to come to terms with it is very uncomfortable. Absolutely. And I think we've got it, you know, I, I often, nothing grows without discomfort, nothing, nothing. There's not a a flower blooming right now that's like oh my gosh I was so in this tightly packed you know bud and now you're asking me to expand right Mm -hmm. in all of it there's not a seed pushing out of the ground that doesn't feel the friction of the ground as it pushes through discomfort is a part of growth I think one of the things that I think is important to remind ourselves is we were uncomfortable in our shame we were uncomfortable. We were uncomfortable in our disconnection from our bodies. We were uncomfortable in our beliefs about our unworthiness. And so if I'm going to be uncomfortable anyway, I might as well be uncomfortable toward my freedom. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to put it. And I think when we do that with people like really dig, like, were you really happy believing into this system? Was it really bringing you joy and satisfaction? And yeah. the answer is almost always no no we wouldn't be you a person wouldn't be at this point of conversation asking about a new way of being if the old way of being was working really well for them (laughs) right totally so and you talk about the default body can you speak on that a little bit absolutely so you know our society all societies I imagine I don't you know I imagine I haven't studied all societies so I won't talk about those (laughs) I'll just talk about the ones I've lived in um But certainly um, Western societies uh, and colonial societies have a default body. And the default body is the body that we've been told inside of a system of bodily hierarchy is the ideal body to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that it's the ideal body to have because it's the body that we see on television. It's the body that we see in advertisements. It's the body that they sell us to tell us that our body isn't good enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a multitude of ways in which that body exists. That body is generally white in a Western colonial context. That body is generally relatively young in a Western colonial context. That body is abled. That body is straight. That body is cisgendered. That body at the top, at highest of the rung, that body is male, right? Mm -hmm. That's the default body. It's the body that when we say, you know, when it's the body that when the um, founding fathers of the United States said all men are created equal, they had a body in mind, <laughs> right? <laughs> a specific body in mind, right? And and when the commercial says, you know, you know, this good for your body, it, it, there's a body inside mm-hmm. of marketing. Right. And that's the default body. And then inside of the system of bodily hierarchy, all the rest of our bodies get, you know, placed somewhere on the ladder mm-hmm. uh, the for a multiple reasons inside of this hierarchy. And we then try to assess, are we good enough based off of this ladder? Right. It, how, and then how do I become, how do I get higher up the ladder? If I'll never, ever be at the top, right. Cause immediately one, if you're 
not male, you won't be at the top. If you're not white, you won't be at the top. If you're not able-bodied, you won't be at the top. If you're not thin, you won't be at the top. There are all kinds of ways in which we know we won't be at the top, but we're always trying to figure out how we can get higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how that's how all of the systems of oppression maintain themselves is by all of us continuing to try to figure out how to climb the ladder. Mm-hmm. And also like this scarcity, like when you talk about the ladder, I'm also thinking about like capitalism, right? Like that there's this urgency, we need to get there, we need to do better constantly, and it just carries out in so many ways. Absolutely. I mean, capital, so the way that I think the latter is all, all of the isms and obias that yeah. assess whether or not you have a good body, right? So capitalism is, do you, does your body have money? And mm-hmm. how much money does your body have? And how much money can your body make? And, it, mm-hmm. and if your body can't make a lot of money, then you're an inherently deficient person, right? You are mm-hmm. down the ladder, right? So all of these systems, you know, are the ladder. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the systems are the ladder, and our um, continued attempts to navigate it inside of, in, because of the belief of scarcity, right? And the belief of scarcity is the belief of not enoughness. And mm-hmm. so our belief that we are not enough is born out of scarcity, right? It's born out of the idea that there is some way to not be enough in a world that is in a planet that is infinite, right? In a universe that is infinite, the idea that I am not enough, enough of what, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when we start to interrogate it, it actually doesn't make sense. Enough what? I'm mm-hmm. atoms and molecules, right? Yeah. And I have just as many atoms and molecules as is needed to make a human. So what, what enough are we talking about? Oh, the enough could only be some external system that tells me what enough is oh that is the ladder of bodily hierarchy that is the ladder that these systems are built on and as long as I am participating in it right and there are all ways in which we're all participating in it but as long as we are particularly unconsciously participating in it that is what makes the ladder real Mm -hmm. the ladder is only as real as we continue to engage it right and that's like that part in your book you know the doing pillar it's like, how can we minimize our impact on that ladder? Like, how can we get off of it? Even just, even if we can't fully get off of it, right? Because we are in this capitalist world. We are living among these body hierarchies, but how can we reduce harm? You know, like, exactly. I love that you point that out too. It's like, you're not the problem. You're not bad. It's the system that's bad, the system that's wrong, but it is our responsibility to reduce the harm that we can. Yeah. And because we, because we are, you know, this is the piece that I think it's complex for people, right? Like I'm talking about this ladder. We did not make the ladder, right? But every day we participate in it, we mend it. We hammer the nails. We say, "Uh oh, that side looks weak. Let me reinforce that with my own beliefs and actions and behaviors. Let me, uh oh, the ladder is looking a little shaky. Let me sturdy it up with my ideas about myself we are always upholding or dismantling these systems of oppression. And we are upholding them and dismantling them by the ways in which we either interrogate and change the ways that we're invested in it, or we do not. And so, you know, I I like to remind people like the system is not some amorphous blob that's like out there floating to get you. It is Mm -hmm. the collective cumulative result of our behaviors <laughs> it is not it is not it didn't just arrive out of nowhere humans made it 
humans maintain it. And if we would like to see it go, it's humans' responsibility to do so. And mm -hmm. I propose that the more connected we are to our own sense of radical self-love, the less we participate in the maintenance of that ladder. We actually begin to be part of how it becomes dismantled. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's beautiful. It's, it so much reminds me of Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Can you talk about body terrorism? Yeah. So, I mean, that system, the system we're talking about, the system of bodily hierarchy and, and the um, acts of psychological, emotional, spiritual, and physical violence that that system enacts to control us, right? To make us continue to participate in that ladder, to, you know, make the stakes of digesting from the ladder so high that we choose not to is the system of body terrorism. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 you know, making the existence um, for trans people's lives so dangerous, so violent that, you know, that they would sooner suppress who they are than to actually be the fullness of themselves mm -hmm. is, is body terrorism. And we see that right now in the, you know, multiple pieces of legislation around the United States that have sought to, um, you know, discriminate against trans people right now. That's body terrorism. You know, the, the number of people who do not go to physicians because um, they know that it doesn't matter what's wrong with them, they'll just be diagnosed for being fat. Mm -hmm. uh, and that there is an entire medical institution whose focus is so intense around fat phobia that they would neglect the rest of their job to do no harm is body terrorism. You know, the fear uh, of, you know, black people all over the place that a routine traffic stop will turn into their death is body terrorism. Mm -hmm. So these systems that continue to reinforce that some bodies are valuable and some bodies are disposable some bodies we care for and some bodies we could care less about. Mm -hmm. And all of the pieces of policy, legislation and institutionalized behaviors that remind us of that and that reinforce that are the systems of body terrorism. Mm -hmm. And they play out in so many ways. Some of them are so insidious and hard to identify, especially yeah. if you're like at the top of that ladder. Um, yeah. And then, but then they all lead to like these big acts of violence, like what we saw a couple weeks ago, right, in Georgia. It's like, that is because we are conditioned to notice which bodies are disposable. So it becomes exactly. easier to discard them. Exactly. And that it is, you know, and that these systems unto themselves say that all bodies are disposable, you know, like there is not a mass shooting that exists in the United States that isn't a function of our belief that people are disposable, mm -hmm. right? People are at the, the people and that our beings are not, are inconsequential, you know, or that they get to be the directive of whatever it is that is going on inside of me, you know? Mm -hmm. And and the ways in which we refuse collectively to deal with um, gun control, right? To to deal meaningfully without stigma with mental health mm -hmm. and, and the ways in which all of those issues get, you know, combined inside of individuals. And let us be honest, we can't have this conversation 
99.8% of mass shooters are men. And mm -hmm. we are not having a conversation about what it is we tell men about what, about whose bodies are disposable. <laughs> Again, if we're talking about this idea of the ladder, right. If everybody below you is disposable, then yes, everybody below you is disposable in an active mass shooting, mm -hmm. of course because that is the story that we have told people in those bodies. And so until we really deal with that and we get so, you know, because we had lumped um, this mythology of individualism into the United States, we, we ignore what are clear patterns. Like most of the people who go out and shoot a whole bunch of people at one time are men. <laughs> what are we telling men? <laughs> you know, most of the people who are out here, you know, perpetrating uh, rape are men, but but we won't have that conversation because it disrupts the top of the ladder, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what do we do with those people at the top of the ladder? Like, cause you talk about in the book too, like change doesn't happen through like shame either. And so how do we get them to really believe that these structures and systems are harmful for everyone, including them, right? Like yes. it harms everyone in the end. It harms everyone. There is no, so first of all, there is no top of the ladder. <laughs> if there were a top of the ladder, right, then we'd all be great and be fine. But it, the reason that you, the reason that, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos can hoard billions and billions of dollars is because there is no top of the ladder. Mm. Right? It's because it's an endless hole to fill. Right. Because you're constantly still trying to figure out how you become worthy enough. And for them, it is I'm worthy enough if I can amass all the money in the world. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> if they print it and I own it all, then I might be worthy enough. Except when they do, then they'll realize that it's still not enough. And then they'll be like Elon Musk. If I can figure out how to own Mars, then I'm <laughs> that <laughs> it's an endless, it's a parasitic desire, right? Um, and so one piece is that, but the piece that I think is actually the most powerful in disrupting this ladder in, in dismantling the ladder is that if from whatever position you are on the ladder, if you look below you and you see who is below you and you, cre you create the space for the people below you to have the access, resource, power and opportunity that you have, that is how you disrupt the ladder because the people at the bottom are the foundation of the ladder. They mm -hmm. hold up the ladder. The ladder is sitting on their back. The ladder is sitting on black trans women's backs, on undocumented people's backs, on the backs of the disabled. That is who the ladder is sitting on. And if we create the world that works for the people below the ladder, then what we have done is we have dismantled the foundational security of the ladder and the mm -hmm. ladder collapses. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. It's like, it's such a ripple effect too. Like, I think, you know, just like emergent strat strategy, right? It's like having those conversations in the people in our lives that we can, we can do that work with and it spreads beyond. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I love that. Um, so, and you talk in the book too, I don't remember if this is actually in your book or a podcast I listened to you with, um, but you talk about how we have the conversations with those in our lives. Like, I think you gave the example of um, a friend who made a comment about trans people um, and how you handled it. Like, can we talk about how do we even have these conversations? Sure. So, yeah, I do. I talk about this in the second edition um, of The Body is Not an Apology. And 
there are a couple of things that, you know, running a digital magazine and digital community space for the last decade, um, it was always my practice that the internet is real life. <laughs> and part of the problem is that we have treated the internet like it's not real life. Um, and that we have, we have these conversations in ways that disconnect us from the humanity of one another. And so um, early on in our work at The Body is Not an Apology, we created community conversation agreements, which were, how can I engage in this conversation, first of all, in a way that honors my inherent dignity and humanity, and that honors yours? You know, mm -hmm. even if I disagree with you, can I honor your inherent dignity and humanity? Mm -hmm. um, can I honor your radical self-love, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, inside of the book, there are a series of guidelines, right? There are guidelines, you know, there are suggestions around like, you know, noticing the places where I use shaming language, where I use judgmental language inside of the conversation, um, taking breaks when I feel incredibly activated so that I'm not speaking from my most triggered place, um, being inside of the conversation from a place of curiosity rather than like I told you so. Uh, mm -hmm. There are a whole series, like maybe 15 or 16, um, specific tactics that we can use inside of those conversations. The other thing that I talk about in the book is what does it mean to disrupt in a, in a way that is not about um, blowing up the day, right? Like I can be disruptive to body shame. I can be disruptive to oppression and oppressive ideas without, um, without being disrespectful and without, you know, destroying relationships. I don't have to destroy relationships. I just have to destroy our um, unspoken um, covenant that we allow each other to be, you know, violent and oppressive to other people and don't say anything about it. <laughs> you know, what, I, what I'm destroying is the unspoken um, agreement that we all invest inside of this ladder. That's what I get to destroy. And I don't have to destroy you to destroy that, that moment. And so in the book, I talk about being on this deck, having this conversation with some folks and hearing them say something transphobic. And just simply in that moment, recognizing I have the opportunity to chat, to, to disrupt this narrative. And I don't have to do anything except say what's true for me. And what's true for me is I have brilliant, amazing, phenomenal trans people in my lives who I respect and love. Mm -hmm. And inside saying that is me also saying, so what you just said is not okay. And we become, we know that. I didn't have to say anything else. They knew it wasn't okay because I countered with what was true for me. And I didn't have to blow up the day. I didn't have to disrespect them. I just had to say what was true for me mm -hmm. um, in my experience of those folks. And when I said that, we understood that, that we were no longer um, going to silently participate in a system that demeans and dehumanizes trans people, not in my presence. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, we got that got together real fast. <laughs> they yeah. recognized I wasn't willing to be complicit in that. And we moved on to a different conversation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is enough. There will be other times where you will need to do more. Um, and, and I think it's important for us to think about, you know, which is which. But th in that moment, that was enough. It was mm -hmm. enough for them to feel to, to feel clear that I wasn't willing to silently engage in this act of um, bodily domination. Mm 
because that's really what that is, is a bunch of cis people talking about trans people is us inside of our experience of domination, right? No, I'm not going to participate in that. And then getting to counter that message with something um, that was affirming about trans people and about trans people's lives. Um, and then moving on, right? Like we could have unpacked it for hours. We could have done all those things, but there wasn't anything else to do except stay no, in this moment, I'm not agreeing with that. And I think we all have opportunities every single day to interrupt the silent agreements of body terror, interpersonal body terrorism. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a perfect example because it's like, I think sometimes people get really caught up and activated and they start like spewing off all these facts and statistics and, you know, and there's a time for that, right? And like, true transformation it happens with compassion and relationship and trust and speaking on our own experiences no one can argue that right like no one can argue that you have trans people in your life that you love right yes. um and so that's a beautiful example um on the larger scale you know thinking about anti-racist work um i really love how you talk about you know, instead of getting mad at the person, get mad at the system. Because I think we all have racist people in our lives. There's no way to escape that. Just like we all have sexist people in our lives and transphobic people in our lives. We're all in this system, but it's really hard to not then disconnect from them because we don't believe, you know, their same thoughts. So how do we, you know, move past that anger and I guess directed at the system yet still like engage with the people in our lives. Yeah. So I think there are two ways in which I hold this. First of all, it's important for me that I'm not like, right, we all, all right. There is an inclination for all of us to be like, that person is that thing. And that's not who I am. And what I invite all of us to do is to say, that too is who I am. Mm -hmm. And maybe to a lesser extent, you know, maybe I'm, Maybe I am, you know, I have just by virtue of existing in this world and breathing in the air that I breathe as a human being, I have breathed in white supremacist delusion. And so I have internalized the machinations of white supremacist delusion. Of course I have, because I live mm -hmm. inside of a system of that, which also means I have breathed in anti-blackness because that is the, you know, necessary linchpin of white supremacist delusion. Yes, mm -hmm. I have. Yes, I've breathed in sexism. Yes, I've breathed in ableism and transphobia. Of course, it's in me. There would be no way for it to not be in me. It is part of the fabric of the society that I exist in. Mm -hmm. The question is, to what extent? And the question is, do I work on a daily basis to remove that which I do not desire to have in me? Mm -hmm. That's the work. The work is not to be like, you are this thing and I'm this other thing because I'm a better person because that's the latter. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's the latter, right? The latter is how am I greater than you? How am I higher up than you inside of my own mind? And it's very easy inside of a social justice world to be like, oh, I'm better than you now because I don't have that thing you have, mm -hmm. right? That's still ladder thinking. That is yes. still us on the ladder. Right. And when I get off the ladder, I say, I have this too. And then I say, I have this too. And I do not desire to keep it. And so I work every day to not keep it. And there are people in my life who have this too. And my job, right there in 
there are multiple ways that I think we need to think about this. This is not a one size fits all situation, right? There are the opportunities to constantly, just like I said, challenge the, the everyday, you know, complicities that we engage in around, particularly around white supremacist delusion, um, but all systems of oppression, right? Any place where we hold um, domination, which I used to formally call privilege, but it's actually domination, <laughs> right? And so uh, any place where we hold, you know, power because of our bodies, we are, we are at an opportunity about whether or not we're gonna be complicit in holding up that area of domination with someone else. And we have family members who are very committed to holding up certain areas of domination. Um, and the, for me, the first assignment is, am I willing to be a consistent disruptor of this system when I see it, mm -hmm. right? And so that means that I am choosing to play the role of the agitator inside of this particular dynamic. And I'm doing that because I desire this dynamic to change. I also think it's important to say, and I think that particularly we have a greater responsibility to do that when we are in relationship with other people where we hold that area, particular area of power, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm, it's my responsibility as a cisgender woman to spend more time and more patience helping to dismantle, you know, uh, cis sexism and transphobia amongst my cisgender friends than it would be for me, you know, to around some other area where I don't hold the same level of power, right? And mm -hmm. so it is, it is my responsibility as a cisgender person to dismantle transphobia. It's my responsibility, mm -hmm. which means it's my responsibility to work with other people who are really transphobic around, you know, helping them move through that. Mm -hmm. um, and, but we also have to be clear between the places where we are, um, you know, where we are committed to shifting something and the places where we, we are in dynamics where we're, we're actually becoming complicit by enabling people who are deeply entrenched in their experience of domination and have no pl ch plans on changing. Mm -hmm. um, are we enabling them, um, you know, by not holding them to account? Like that's actually really what the work is, is can I be accountable to the ways in which I'm complicit to this system? And can I, and can I ask my loved ones to be accountable? And will I'm, am I willing to continue to ask my loved ones to be accountable on a regular basis, you know? Mm -hmm. And when they are not willing to be accountable, what then are the, re the real lived consequences of unwillingness to be accountable to one's harm, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think we've got to figure out what that journey is for us individually, yeah. um, you know? And, and I think that we have to figure out for ourselves, am I the kind of person who, to avoid the experience of being labeled a disruptor, I will just cut off all relationship, right? So I'm just going to tap out. I'm done with those people. I don't talk to them anymore. Right. But I never, ever spoke up once about the things that I saw. I never said anything to them. I never actually confronted them about the things. I never gave them any story about my own journey and how I was learning or changing. I didn't try. I just quit. Right. And I, and oftentimes that's just a reenactment of domination. Like mm -hmm. that's actually another, that's, that is me saying, right, this this feels too hard and so I'm tapping out. 
you get to do that. And then what you do is you leave the responsibility of having to deal with the outcome of that particular person to the person who's most marginalized and impacted by their harm. Right. right? So no, we don't get to just tap out because we're tired of it when we're in the position of dominance inside of that. Our job is to is to try, is to make the effort. And then our job is to say, I have, I have tried, I've made the effort. See that that effort is not changing. This person is unapologetically committed to being harmful. Then what is my action, right? Mm -hmm. But the key is not to just go immediately to cutting people off, nor is it to coddle and enable people who are harmful. And we've mm -hmm. got to be constantly in the dynamic in question of what's my responsibility as a person who holds um, power and privilege and domination in this particular category. What is my responsibility towards disrupting this? And, mm -hmm. and how do I do that over a sustained period of time? That's not a one and done process. Mm -hmm. It's such an art, you know, like we have to like it's hold both hands. Yeah, it really yeah. is. I love the part in your book, it's one of the radical reflections where you kind of list out the different marginalized bodies and you ask readers to say, okay, what are the cultural messages you've received about these bodies? Um, yeah. And how does that influence how you interact with these bodies? I thought that was amazing because I think, you know, for some people that that shame of recognizing their own privilege or recognizing how they've harmed people prevents them from doing this work. But when you frame it as like, what has the culture told you? Then mm -hmm. you can almost like set aside that shame for a moment and actually unpack it. Exactly. And the, you know, the goal of the work is to get us to recognize again, there's nothing, I don't, I don't, um, I'm like, what's a good, what's the metaphor I want to work with today? <laughs> I don't have shame about having boogers. Mm -hmm. I didn't make the boogers in my nose. They just make themselves. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And my job is to notice when I have a booger and go clean my nose. But it serves me no purpose to be running around here ashamed of boogers. Right. right. And that is the same way that I feel about all of these systems. Right. That they are they are they are things that we got because we live in a society that has them. Of course, we got them. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't serve us to run around with a bunch of shame about having them. Of course, we have them. And the shame leaves when we just accept that. Like when I really am just like, of course, of course, I'm going to say something transphobic. Mm -hmm. I'm rooted in transphobia. Like everything around me is transphobic. It's in brain, whether I want it to be or not. Right. But I can be committed on a daily basis to trying to get curious about what those messages are and remove them and put new information to counter them inside of my brain. I mm -hmm. can do that. Um, and for any, if we're going to hold shame about anything, have shame about the ways we haven't tried to to get rid of the booger that's hanging in our right. nose. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And I think it's so important. And like, you know, the social justice spaces, like we were talking about, it becomes like another ladder, right? And so like, we have to be willing to showcase our mistakes and our, our, our areas of growth too. If we're asking others, we need to hold ourselves accountable as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We are imperfect in this. We will be imperfect in this, you know, mm -hmm. and there's, there's no way around that. And I think that the work is, can I be gracious in my imperfections? Can I be honest about my mistakes? And can I work genuinely to, you know, to make amends where amends can be made? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Your work is so transformational. When I saw that it made like the New York Times bestselling list, I got like just such a spark of hope that like 
these messages are going to get out to more people and maybe we can really take down that ladder. Yeah, I certainly hope so. You know, what, whether it be in my lifetime or a lifetime after mine, I'm really grateful to get to, to contribute to what I do believe. I believe that at some point, I know that we will have to take down the ladder or we will not survive as a species. That is just what is true. Mm -hmm. And I'm very clear about that. And so um, my, my hope is that we will continue to move toward, um, toward being able to do that, you know, and whether we live to see it or not, I certainly continue to plan to, you know, have my saw, <laughs> have my saw and saw out the rings and rungs that I can. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I am so thrilled that your work is out there because, you know, when I was going through eating disorder recovery treatment, um, not once was I asked about how my mixed race experience impacted the way I felt about my body. It was so uh, whitewashed. <laughs> and um, when I started becoming a therapist, I thought, well, I need to do this work of like intersecting all these identities and how it influences how we see our bodies. And I thought my ideas were original. And then I found your book. And I was <laughs> like, oh my gosh, this is like the guidebook to body justice. And so I'm just so passionate about spreading your word, spreading your book. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just so happy we could meet today. Uh, likewise, I likewise. I'm, I feel really grateful to be in what I know in this particular moment history. You know, you mentioned Adrian, you took your work. Like, there is a collective of humans who are like, there's a different way that we can be with mm -hmm. each other and with ourselves. And um, I think we are all adding to, um, to the collective efforts to dismantle this ladder and to usher in what a world of radical self-love could look like. So I'm just glad to get to do that work with you. Yes, absolutely. Is there any like last words of wisdom you want listeners to hear about in terms of your book or your the workbook? Yeah, I mean, go buy the workbook, <laughs> do the work. Yes. You know, I think that's the biggest thing that is really important, particularly in this time where everyone's like, oh, what can I read now? What can I read now? And I'm like, I want you to read all the things, but I want you to do something. Mm -hmm. Like if you're, you know, reading unto itself will not dismantle the ladder. No. <laughs> it is our collective action that dismantles the ladder. So if you've read six books, it's time to take a break and go do something. Do some action. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and the workbook gives you some invitations. The book gives you some invitations to things you can actually do. Mm -hmm. So I invite you to go to, you know, to collect all the information you can, but work, do mm -hmm. something, find, find who you can be in community with and lend your, you know, lend your brilliance, your unique um, gifts and talents to, to this work of, you know, liberation, this work of uh, radical self-love. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sonia. It was such a pleasure talking to you. My last question, um, I love to ask everyone this. Um, when you hear the word or the term body justice, uh, what does this mean to you? Yeah, body justice is, well, it makes me think of two things. So it makes me think of Dr. Uh, Cornell West's quote, which says, you know, um, justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. And so if justice is what love looks like in public, then what does it mean for the world to love our bodies in public? What does mm -hmm. it look like for all of our bodies to be loved radically out in the world? That's what body justice means to me. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing and thanks so much for taking the time. Where can people find you and just hear more about your work? 
They can find me at sonyarenetaylor.com uh, is my website. Um, you can hang out with me on Instagram for as long as I decide to remain on that platform. <laughs> and that's at Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, you can follow the work of The Body is Not an Apology at thebodyisnotanapology.com and also on Instagram and Facebook at uh, The Body is Not an Apology. And I think we are Radical Body Love on Twitter. Um, and you can hang out with me on Patreon and support my work um, economically uh, at Sonia Renee Taylor as well. So all the things are at Sonia Renee Taylor. <laughs> yes, go find her everyone because yes, her work is transformational. Um, thank you so much, Sonia. I'll let you go. I know you, it's your morning over there. So I don't want to take your whole morning. <laughs> thank you. I super appreciate you having me. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. If you guys are enjoying my content, I would love for you to consider sponsoring my work. Now, I know this sounds like super fancy, but it's really not. It just means subscribing to a monthly donation for my content, as little as 99 cents. Um, anything helps me in order to continue taking the time to create wonderful content for you all. I really put my heart and soul into this work. Um, so there will be a link in the show notes on how to do this. And of course, you could cancel at any time. Um, thanks so much as always for tuning in today and to yet another episode of Body Justice.